Yeah, that's a great example. Exactly, that's perfect. Or in the opposite case, um, we might say that they're perfectly fine with murder, whereas they don't even think that they're committing murder. So, yeah. Um, So when you're analyzing a worldview, it's really important not to import your own view into that worldview because then you're not really analyzing that worldview. You're analyzing that worldview plus your worldview, which generally conflicts and doesn't make sense and looks ridiculous. So it's easy to annihilate a worldview that nobody holds to and that nobody would hold to, Um, but it's a lot more difficult to actually jump into the other person's worldview and try to understand it on its terms. So one of the things to remember is that that view's authorities are the only authorities that can be appealed to when you're talking about an entire worldview. So under naturalism, if you're really going to understand the naturalist perspective, uh, naturalism, by the way, let me give a definition of that. Naturalism is a denial of the existence of anything supernatural. Naturalism is a denial of the existence of anything supernatural. That's sort of the primary definition that we're going to be working with. It's, it's a denial that any event has supernatural significance. Uh, it also emphasizes the scientific method. It says that the scientific method should be the preferred method in investigating all areas of reality. So naturalists, in terms of the worldview that we're discussing, they love science, or the scientific method, at least they claim to, and uh, they deny the existence of the supernatural. They, they generally believe that scientific laws are adequate to account for all phenomena. You can explain things through science. It can be done, and that's the way it should be done, according to the naturalist. So if you're trying to understand naturalism, you can't ask yourself, um, why don't they listen to God? Well, they're, they're claiming that God doesn't even exist in their worldview. That's why they don't listen to him. That's consistent with their view. God doesn't exist, therefore I don't listen to some sort of God. Um, Of course, we know that God does exist, but that's a little bit beside the point. So the first question that I would have for a naturalist is, what do you mean by supernatural? What exactly are you denying the existence of? It's obvious that they deny the existence of an omnipotent, omniscient, rational creator God, because that would be a God who created nature. It would be super natural, but what about other stuff? Is there other stuff that they deny the existence of? And most naturalists are going to claim that naturalism, because it denies the supernatural, denies the existence of things like angels, demons, ghosts, fairies, leprechauns, all that kind of stuff. But I strongly suspect if you're walking with a naturalist through the woods and you guys encounter some flying little woman zipping around on her hummingbird wings, and she kind of glows a little bit, that the naturalist wouldn't say, naturalism is false. He would say, well, naturalism's true and fairies exist. So I don't think that naturalism really entails the denial of the existence of fairies or ghosts or leprechauns. But that leads to a question, why do they say that it does if it doesn't? Uh, And I think the answer is because they're, they're trying to imply an argument to the theist, to to us, to Christians, Muslims, anybody who believes in any kind of a God, they're trying to imply an argument that believing in God is like believing in fairies. How many of you guys believe in fairies? Okay. (laughs) None of you believe in fairies. Why would you believe in God? They're equally ridiculous. That's, I think, the implied argument. That's why they would say, "I'm I'm I'm a naturalist. I don't believe in anything supernatural like gods or fairies or ghosts. They're trying to make you feel silly. But the problem is, is the argument that they're trying to imply, if you don't believe in fairies, why would you believe in God? The 
conclusion doesn't follow from the premise. I don't believe in fairies. I do believe in God. There's no problem with that. Well, if you don't believe in fairies, why do you believe in Donald Trump? What's the connection? <laughs> Donald Trump isn't a fairy. God isn't a fairy. What are you talking about? Why are you trying to suggest that if I don't believe in fairies, I shouldn't believe in God? So it, it's a misrepresentation combined with a really bad argument. Um, and that, I think, is generally the presentation of naturalism. You might have heard some atheists, naturalists, say something like, um, everybody's an atheist, you're an atheist, you don't believe in Thor, you don't believe in Odin, you don't believe in Allah, I just believe in one less God than you do. Have you ever, anybody ever heard that before? No, okay. I guess I'm, I walk in different circles, I hear it all the time. <laughs> um, again, to me, that's, that's absurd. Like, uh, to say that Thor doesn't exist, therefore it's reasonable to say that Yahweh doesn't exist, there's no connection there. I mean, you might as well say that you don't believe in Isengard, therefore you also don't believe in Istanbul. Isengard is a fictional location in The Lord of the Rings. Istanbul is a very real place. Like, why would I reject one just because I reject the other? So the arguments just don't tend to make sense. But beyond that, there's, I think, a huge problem um, with naturalism, denying the supernatural, specifically denying the existence of an omnipotent, omniscient creator god. Um, and that problem is, the problem is reason. Uh, it's rational justification. So whenever we use our minds, we're implicitly claiming that whatever made our minds knew what it was doing. If we claim that whatever made our minds did not know what it was doing, then we're claiming that our own thought processes, our own first principles have no reason behind them. And all of our conclusions that are based on those are also without reason. If you start without reason, you don't wind up having reason at the end. <clears throat> the essential difference between monotheism uh, and non-theism is that uh, everything in monotheism, according to monotheism, behind absolutely everything is reason. But in non-theism, in, in naturalism, atheism, uh, whatever you want to call it, Behind everything, all human experience is no reason, an absence of reason. You can tell I'm nervous, I can't even write straight. Um, my writing is normally at least a little better than that. Uh, so ultimately, behind everything in, in naturalism is an absence of reason including that's what's behind our own conclusions, our own thought processes, our own understanding of the world around us. Whenever someone appeals to authoritative reason, you know, reason says you should think this way, reason says we should come to this conclusion, whenever somebody appeals to authoritative reason, they are in fact appealing to a rational authority over, first of all, thought, and second of all, the things that we think about. If reason isn't an authority over those two things, then there is no rational connection between our thoughts and the things that we think about. And if they're appealing to reason, then they're actually appealing to God. As you can see, reason, no reason. That's the difference. Uh, some atheists will tell you that uh, um, there are a lot of different arguments for the existence of God, like the cosmological argument. Some of you might have heard of that before, um, which basically states that uh, everything that begins to exist has a cause, the universe has a cause, Therefore, the universe 
um, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Uh, and so theists will often use that argument and say, so God exists, because there's a cause of the universe. But some non-theists uh, will say, well, gravity caused everything. Um, gravity is some sort of uh, eternally existent thing and it caused everything. Um, so let's just grant that that's possible. Well, what's the difference between gravity and God? <laughs> gravity doesn't reason. <laughs> what, what reason does gravity have for causing you to believe that contradictions are false or that one plus one is two? Uh, or that your senses are generally reliable. Gravity has no reason for causing you to believe any of that. There's no reason behind your beliefs if there's no reason behind your beliefs. <clears throat> so naturalism cannot be rationally affirmed because, just like every non-theistic view, it is literally a denial of reason. Uh, which reminds me of um, Psalm, Psalm 14.1 and also Psalm 53.1. If you're claiming that there's no reason behind your own beliefs, you're claiming your beliefs are irrational you're claiming to be a fool. And the Bible says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But again, we need to internally analyze every worldview. So we might be tempted to think, <clears throat> well, the naturalist likes science. I like science. They believe science is a path to truth. I believe science is a path to truth. We have some common ground. Let's start there and let's build on it and talk about this together. You might be tempted to do that, and I would encourage you not to. <laughs> because our assumption in our worldview, it's justified. It makes sense. We trust science because God is rational, and God has told us that we can trust our, our senses, generally speaking. He's, he's caused us to believe that through a rational process. But they trust science in spite of the fact that there's absolutely no reason for them to do that. Gravity makes them trust science. Gravity doesn't know what it's doing. So their trust of science is not like our trust of science. Our trust of science in our worldview makes sense. Their trust of science in their worldview can't possibly make sense because nothing can make sense. Naturalism tends to border on scientism. Um, anybody know what scientism is? No, okay. Uh, scientism claims that science is the route to all knowledge. So it's not just the best way to understand things that we see, phenomenon that we observe, it's the only way to understand anything. That would be scientism. But this is self-defeating because if every truth claim is to be justified using the scientific method, then please justify every truth claim is to be justified using the scientific method, using the scientific method. And there's no way to do that. So the claim that it makes is subject to itself and it doesn't fit its own category. It's self-refuting. Scientism is. Uh, some naturalists are scientists. Scientismists. <laughs> uh, naturalism also tends to rely on evolutionary claims. Uh, up until very recently in the history of humankind, uh, there were not a whole lot of people who held to a non-supernatural view. Uh, not a whole lot of atheists. In recent years, the last few couple hundred years, it has exploded. Um, the very first officially atheistic state uh, was Albania in the 1960s. So up until the 1960s, there were no officially atheist states. There were some that were practically atheist, the communist uh, Soviet Union was. Um, they were practically atheist, but not officially. Uh, but there were plenty of official Christian nations, official Muslim nations, 
for generations and generations and generations before that. Why weren't there any atheist ones? Well, the answer is because evolution. <laughs> uh, Charles Darwin came up with his theory of evolution, and that gave an appearance of scientific credence to the idea of atheism, uh, the idea of naturalism, the idea that there is no God. Um, <clears throat> as a result, naturalists tend to favor the theory of evolution or relying on evolutionary claims. Uh, to call it a theory is a little bit of a stretch, I think. Um, but in point of fact, I, I, evolution, one of the major claims of evolution, in case you're unfamiliar with it, is that human beings are descended from non-humans. Our ancestors weren't human. They were apes or ape-like creatures, and before that, they were something else, and before that, and ultimately, we're descended from single-celled organisms. <clears throat> Charles Darwin's claims were that over a small, or over a long period of time, very small changes uh, add up to very huge changes. So you look different than your parents, that would be a small change. Well, just imagine that multiplied by, you know, 50 million years. Huge change. So that was Darwin's idea. And <clears throat> there's, there's only, uh, there, there are some problems with this, though. One of the first problems is that there's no actual evidence whatsoever that humans are descended from non-humans. There just isn't any. Uh, no one has ever, additionally, no one has ever observed humans being born from non-humans. So there's literally no direct scientific evidence. The scientific method necessitates repeated observation and experimentation. That just hasn't been done. So at best, this is a hypothesis, not even a theory from a scientific perspective. Now, in addition to that, um, all of the supposed evolutionary transitional forms, uh, it, you would think that if these small changes over millions of years turn into different kinds of creatures, and you would think that if there's a fossil record that contains a record of all of the creatures that have ever died, or at least a lot of them, that we would find tons of transitional forms in the fossil record. But when we look in the fossils, we find apes and humans. We don't find the in-between stuff. It's not there. Right, the missing link. Um, there are a lot of claims that people have found missing links, you might have heard of Lucy or the Neanderthals. Lucy was an ape, the Neanderthals were, human, were humans. There's no missing links there. <laughs> and they're easily classifiable as such, both of them are. Um, so the absence of these transitional forms, that there's nothing in between the human and the ape, and it's not just humans and apes, it's all other kinds of transitional forms. They seem to be remarkably absent from the fossil record. The absence of these transitional forms really bothered Charles Darwin but he assumed that enough research into the fossil record just hadn't been done yet. And here's a direct quote from Darwin. He says, uh, it's in your sheets if you have, if you have one of the sheets. Um, he says, the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on Earth must be truly enormous. Why then is it not, why, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Darwin said the transitional fossils don't exist, at least as far as he knew. His thought was that they will be found. We just haven't really uncovered them yet. They're there, we haven't done enough research, eventually we'll find it. Well, over 100 years later, it's still a problem. <laughs> the absence of transitional forms 
is still noted. In 1972, so Darwin wrote that in 1859. So uh, over 100 years later, 1972, Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould, they came up with a theory called punctuated equilibrium. And their claim was that while Darwin was saying that, that evolution happens like that, slow changes, long period of time, eventually you wind up with something that's nothing like the original. <clears throat> their claim was, no, it, it happens over brief stints followed by long periods of stasis. So you had this sort of stasis, this equilibrium where the children are a lot like the parents, and then all of a sudden, whammo, they're nothing like it. Huge transitions uh, all, all overnight from a geological timescale perspective. It might take several generations, but in terms of millions of years, several generations is nothing. So if you only have you know, 10 generations that cause this massive change from, from this to this, only 10 generations, you may not find them in the fossil record. You've got 1,000 generations here, you'll find them in the fossil record. 1,000 generations here, you'll find them in the fossil record. But these 10, probably not. So that's why we're not finding the evidence that we would expect to find if evolution actually happened. In other words, punctuated equilibrium says, if evolution happened this way, we shouldn't expect fossil evidence for it. There isn't fossil evidence for it, so this is what happened. I hope you guys all caught that. I'm not getting the laughs that I was expecting. Um, anyway, that's fine. Uh, evolutionary claims in turn rely on the claim of an ancient Earth because it takes a long time for these small changes to add up to human beings, from goo to you, all by way of the zoo. <laughs> but supposed geological evidences of an ancient Earth are easily explained by a biblical flood. First of all, there are ancient global flood narratives very similar to the biblical narrative from a plethora of cultures around the world. Asia, Europe, Africa, the United States, uh, ancient, ancient cultural narratives that tend to match the idea of the biblical flood. A giant flood wiped out everything, some people survived on a boat with some animals. It's a very common cultural claim, many different cultures. What's more, there are these things called polystrate fossils. Um, I'm not gonna write that on the board because I've figured that I can't write very well at the moment. But when you look at the Earth, uh, cross-section of the Earth, like at the Grand Canyon, you're gonna see uh, layers. And typically speaking, the evolutionary view and the geological, common geological view is that these layers are laid over millions of years and there's a sort of a pause between them of millions of years, and then you have another layer that's laid over millions of years. And so you're gonna have animals that existed during this million year time period, you're gonna find their fossils here. Animals that existed during this million year time period, you're gonna find their fossils here. The problem is that there are entire forests that are buried like that. Now you can see if it takes millions of years to bury and fossilize the bottom half of the tree, the top half isn't gonna exist. It can't be buried and fossilized, it's not there anymore. So it seems pretty clear that these, these layers, by the way, these layers cross continents, so they're huge, we're not talking about some local thing. These are huge layers that cross continents, and it seems very clear that they were laid at much the same time. And that's what we would expect if the biblical narrative of the flood actually happened. The reason we would expect that is because, or one of the reasons we would expect that, is because according to the flood, the fountains of the great deep burst forth that sounds like geysers. You guys are familiar with geysers? Uh, well, where we find geyser activity, we also find volcanic activity. They go hand in hand. 
So we would expect with the amount of geysers that there would have to be to flood the entire world, we would expect a whole lot of volcanic activity. When you have a whole lot of volcanic activity, you have a volcano laying a layer, it cools a little bit over a few hours, another volcano lays another layer, cools a little bit over a few hours. You have forests buried under multiple layers. Makes perfect sense. And in fact, uh, the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980 adds um, observational data to the claim that Noah's Ark and Noah's Flood actually happened the way that we, you read about it in Scripture. <clears throat> um, multiple strata can be laid, strata being these things, uh, they can be laid and massive canyons can be cut in a matter of days. This was observed when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. So we know that it doesn't necessarily take millions of years to do that kind of work. Another, another issue is that there are often bent strata in multiple layers. So you'd have strata that go like that. But if this is solid rock, and this is solid rock, then whenever this bending occurred, it would have actually cracked it. It wouldn't get laid like this. It would instead get laid something, it would, it would look a little bit different than it does look. It seems clear that they bent at the same time, but if one of them was solid rock when it bent, it wouldn't have bent, it would have broken. But it didn't break, it bent. So it indicates that it bent when it was laid, when it was still molten. Now a lot of people will also point to radiometric dating um, and claim that, well, you know, the rocks have been dated, so we know that they're millions of years old because we dated them. We have this radiometric dating thing. You do understand radiometric dating, don't you? Well, it tells us how old the rocks are, so you're claiming that they're young. They're not. Radiometric dating says so. <clears throat> carbon dating. You guys familiar with radiometric dating, carbon dating? You've heard the terms? Okay. Um, the way that radiometric dating works, though, it's, it's not only not an exact science, it's an incredibly inexact science. Uh, first of all, what they do is they, they, they look at a parent uh, isotope that gives off radiation, and as it gives off this radiation, it turns into a child, uh, child element. So you have the parent element, you have the child element. And it gives off a certain amount of radiation over a certain period of time, and it's measurable. So you can, you can take a look at how much of the parent element is there, and how much of the child element is there, and then you can figure out, based upon the rate of decay, how long it's been decaying, and therefore when it started. So that's how they get the date. Hope that kind of made sense. Um, but nobody has any idea how much of the parent element was there to begin with. Nobody has any idea if child element was present to begin with. Nobody has any idea if the rate of decay changed, and it does, and it can. Um, the rate of decay itself is really just an average because the decay is actually random. It just happens whenever it happens. So they observe you know, a, a long period of this decay, and they say, well, on average, it happens at this rate under these conditions, which may not have been the conditions a thousand years ago. The decay rate can also change if it's surrounded by a different type of element. So if you have a, a rock that's surrounded by gold versus a rock that's surrounded by silver, the decay rate might be different. There's a variety of, of, of problems with the decay rate. So I mentioned the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. Well, some uh, clever people decided that they would have those rocks, the rocks that were formed in 1980, that they watched being formed in 1980, have them dated. 
so they were sent off for radiometric dating to Geochron Laboratories. And these rocks that were formed in 1980 were found to be between 340,000 to 2.8 million years old. Now right there, obviously there's a problem. Wait a second, is it 340,000 or is it 2.8 million? Well, it depends on which radiometric dating method you're using. They don't know. And in fact, they were just from 1980. They were less than 10 years old. Okay, that's naturalism. Um, anybody have any questions about naturalism? No. Oh, by the way, if you have interest in evolution or the age of the Earth, there's some fantastic local resources, the Creation Museum. If you guys have never been there and this topic interests you, please go, it's really cool. Uh, the Ark Encounter, it's a full-size Noah's Ark that's also a museum. Both of these are local, and people come from all over the country to go to these places. So you guys are very, very blessed to have them near you. Um, and I'd highly recommend checking them out if the topic interests you at all. I, I did used to work there. I don't work there anymore. <laughs> yes. Okay. Apes or humans. And obviously that's, that's just so far. Uh, they may come out with something tomorrow that is not an ape or a human, I don't know. But so far, they've all been apes or humans. All right, so now we're going to move on to a, a different worldview, which is actually kind of a subcategory of the first one, called humanism. Naturalism is the claim that uh, it's a denial of the existence of anything supernatural. Humanism, on the other hand, states that man is the measure of all things. That was a statement made by an ancient Greek philosopher named Protagoras. I don't know much about him, just that he was an ancient Greek philosopher. Uh, but humanism entails the placement of humans in the most elevated position. It's the philosophical belief that the welfare and happiness of mankind in this life is of primary concern. The Humanist Manifesto, here's a quote from the Humanist Manifesto. It says, humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without supernaturalism, so it entails naturalism, it's a philosophy of life that without supernaturalism affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. So in other words, a good summary is that human flourishing is the greatest good and human suffering is the greatest evil. Human flourishing is the greatest good and human suffering is the greatest evil. So obviously in that this entails naturalism, there are logical problems with it. There's no reason to believe anything at all under naturalism. Humanism is a form of naturalism. There's no reason to believe anything at all under humanism either. But humanism has an additional problem that naturalism per se doesn't necessarily have. Humanism is a form of morality. It's saying you ought to be concerned with humans. It's saying you ought to not hurt humans. It's saying you ought to help humans. Now, we agree with those things. You ought to help humans. You ought to not hurt humans. Sure, that's fine. <clears throat> but as a form of morality, it presupposes that there are authoritative prescriptive goals for human behavior because that's what morality is. So one goal that we have is not to hurt humans. This is an authoritative goal 
It's a prescriptive goal. We don't always follow it. Sometimes we, we mess it up. Sometimes we uh, choose not to follow it. It's not descriptive. It doesn't describe what we do. It prescribes what we ought to do. It's a goal. It's a goal for our behavior. Whose goal is it? Is it your goal? Why should I care about your goal? Why shouldn't I go hurt humans if I want to just because you don't want me to? You have a goal for me to hurt, not hurt. You have a goal for me to not hurt humans. Who are you to me? You're just some guy, some girl. If it's an authoritative goal, then there has to be an authority over humans. And as soon as there's an authority over humans, humans are no longer in the most elevated place. Humanism says that humans are in the most elevated place and that we have these rules that we have to follow that some authority over us gave us. It doesn't make any sense at all. It just collapses on itself. Um, anyway, humanism presupposes that there is no authority over humans since humans are in the most elevated place, yet it also presupposes that there is an authority over humans because it is a system of morality. So I'm gonna walk through this really quickly so that you can fill in the blanks there if you want. Morals are authoritative prescriptive goals for human behavior. For example, what the Nazis did was morally wrong. What do you mean by that? Do you mean that you just don't like what they did? Do you mean that what they did doesn't conform to our standards in our society? Why should it? Or do you mean that there's some sort of authority over all humans, all time, that says, no, don't do that. <laughs> what do you mean when you say that what the Nazis did was morally wrong? And you don't have to agree with you know, their moral claim. They might be claiming it was morally wrong for the Jews to invade Palestine when they left Egypt. Uh, which God commanded them to do. You know, that was morally wrong. It involved genocide. Whatever it is their claim is, they're claiming something was morally wrong. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by morals? They always mean authoritative prescriptive goals for human behavior. That's just the way that the word is always used. Now, any collection of goals can be called a will. So you don't just have authoritative prescriptive goals for human behavior. You have an authoritative prescriptive will over humans. And any authoritative will over all of humans can be called a god. So any system of morality necessitates some kind of a god that has authority over human beings. And humanism is a system of morality. Since humanism is internally incoherent, it also cannot be rationally affirmed. So again, we need to look at worldviews with internal analysis. Um, and we note that we assume that murder is immoral, and they assume that murder is immoral, and so we're tempted to begin there on these common assumptions, assuming that they believe it for the same reason we do. And sort of they do believe it for the same reason we do. They believe it because God created them and God told them not to kill humans. That's why they believe it. But they're claiming to believe it for completely different reasons. They're claiming to believe it because there is no authority over humans, and the authority over humans tells them to believe it. And it makes no sense. So don't just grant that because we share this common assumption, they hold to the same reasoning that we hold to. They don't, and that's the problem. That's the thing to focus on, is how did you get to this point where you're saying that murder is wrong? How did you even get there? So one question to ask is, whose authoritative goal is it that humans not murder? Are there any, any questions at this point in time? Any comments, any thoughts? Yes, sir. You have a question, thought, comment, argument, insult, 
Okay. All right, so how does Christianity differ from humanism? Well, we both realize we shouldn't kill people. We both realize that humans are important. Um, We both want to eliminate as much human misery as we can. So it seems like, you know, maybe they're saying the same thing that we're saying. At least, at least the end result. Maybe it's the same. It's not the same. <laughs> For Christianity, humans are not the most elevated position. God is. For Christianity, under Christianity, the welfare and happiness of mankind is not of primary concern. It's a secondary concern. God's glory is of primary concern. Human flourishing under Christianity is not the greatest good, and human suffering is not the greatest evil. Christianity says that loving God is the greatest good that we can do, and hating or rejecting God would be the greatest evil. Matthew 22 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. In other words, under Christianity, it's, it's not all about us. Under humanism, it is. It's just about us. Additionally, under Christianity, everybody uses the term moral to refer to authoritative prescriptive goals for human behavior. Christianity actually recognizes that that is what morals are and they do exist. For example, um, in the book of Romans, Paul says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, where God has not given authoritative prescriptive goals for human behavior, there's no transgression of those prescriptions. If God doesn't prescribe something for us, we're not violating God's prescriptions by not doing it, not prescribed. Uh, in First John chapter 3, John says, sin is lawlessness, or I would translate that as sin is disobedience to God's authoritative prescriptive goals for human behavior. You disobey the law that God gave, you're sinning. But if there is no God, then he didn't give a law, there can't be any sin, there can't be any immorality. Wow, I thought I was going to go over, definitely did not do that. <laughs> Anybody have any questions or anything at all that you want to add? No. Okay, awesome. Thank you for listening, for putting up with me.